Well, good morning. You might wonder where the title of the series came from, Far as the Curse is Found, but we sang it just a few moments ago in the song Joy to the World. It's one of the refrains. Uh, What we're doing this month is going through the verses of that hymn, and rather than preaching on the verses, obviously they're not inspired, we're taking them as uh, uh, looking for what is it in the Bible drew the writer of that great song to write the words that he did. And this morning we want to think about the first verse, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And that's primarily what we want to think about. Let every heart prepare him room. Now people have always been interested in knowing the future. And so in every generation there are people who pretend that they can predict the future. And and, uh, there's always been people doing that and others who have been trying to point out how wrong they are, and generally speaking, fortune tellers and supposed prophets like Edgar Cayce and others who arise at various times are shown to be charlatans. But uh, most people recognize that the Bible contains many predictions, some of which have already come to pass and some of which haven't. The Bible stands as a source of prediction that uh, has not been proven to be wrong, at least in the basic predictions that can be identified and shown in their fulfillment. It's important to understand that the Bible, a big book obviously in the Old Testament, contains a long section called the Prophets. And the Prophets wrote from about 800 B.C. to around 500 B.C. And they usually have odd Hebrew names from the Old Testament, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, and so forth. And they are the writing prophets. There were other prophets uh, recorded in the Bible, and sometimes uh, some of their sayings are found. But the ones who wrote down their messages, they were gathered together and uh, put together in the books of the Old Testament. Now, uh, it's important to understand that prophecy in the Bible is more than prediction. In fact, prediction of future events is a relatively small part of what is written in the prophets. The majority of what the prophets talked about, maybe 75 or 80% or more of their material, was what we would think of as preaching. It was strong exhortation based on some passage that was written down, particularly in the law, the first five books, to the contemporary situation of people at the time that they were written. They were exhorting them to live by God's word, much in the way that preachers would do today. But in the prophets, there is a smaller part that involves the prediction of future events. And the Bible gives us uh, some strict ways in which we might determine whether a prophet is a true prophet. And the primary one is that the words that he predicts, the events that he predicts, must come to pass. To be a true prophet, the words that he predicts uh, must come to pass and be demonstrated to do that. Now, there are many places in the Bible where there are predictions that are fulfilled. In fact, they're found in most books, some prediction of something going to happen, and then you find its fulfillment. At times, they may be hard for us to see because they involve contemporary experiences in an ancient time. So it's kind of like, have you ever read a book that talks about, you know, something in the 1800s? And, and, and it's very important to them, but you can't for the life you figure out what it's about because you don't understand the situation that was around at that time and why certain words and phrases were so inflammatory to people at points. Well, prophets are a little bit like that. But um, 
The prophet is simply a mouthpiece of God. And there are these predictions of the future. A very clear one would be like this. Isaiah, in about 720, 730 B.C., predicted that his nation, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah would be uh, cast into exile under the Babylonians, a nation that was not prominent in the world at that point, and that a specific person named Cyrus would uh, extend an edict that would allow them freedom to return to their land. Now, that was a prediction before the event, and the event actually occurred, it's recorded in world history, in 738, uh, excuse me, 538 B.C., when Cyrus, the king of Persia, or the Babylonians, freed the Jews from their exile, allowed them to return and rebuild their temple. Now, what skeptics say about that is they say that it's not true. It couldn't have happened. And, and they reason like this. Isaiah was a big book, and it was developing over time, an assumption. And, and so people added things to it at points. And in this case, someone added a prediction that had already come to pass, but they later put it in there, this thing about Cyrus, because how could someone know 200 years in advance that a specific individual named Cyrus was going to do such a specific thing? Well, there are a number of problems with, with that view. One is that the book of Isaiah is remarkably consistent in its vocabulary and sentence structure, and it's demonstrated to be from the 8th century B.C. That's how the vocabulary of the book is. It's very consistent in that way. It's very consistent in the people that it refers to, the historical events and all of that. And the idea that someone just added something at a point in time at different places in the book doesn't seem to make much sense, but mostly the problem with that view is it's a clear example of a logical fallacy called circular reasoning. Because what it really says is, that can't be true because it couldn't be true. What they mean is, we know no one could predict the future. And since no one can predict the future, Isaiah couldn't have predicted the future. Well, that, that's circular reasoning. The, the fact is, the whole Bible purports to be a message from God. It, it, it asks us to consider that it might be outside the general range of the fact that people cannot predict the future. And it gives us clear and precise, as we'll see this morning, examples of prediction of the future of things that came to pass. So the Bible stands firm against its critics. It contains predictions. Many of them are fulfilled uh, right after they were said. Many of them are fulfilled much later. Some of them have yet to be fulfilled. The prophecy isn't meant just to interest us. It's not meant to help us make charts and graphs of what's going to happen at the end times or anything like that. It has a very specific purpose that has to do with faith, and we want to think about that this morning. How do the predictions of the Bible speak to us? What do they say to us about our own convictions, what we should think, what we should do? Now, I, I want to do that simply by examining the passage that Mary Kay read for you uh, just a few moments ago. We're familiar with this passage because of the first verse that she read. You may have heard this before, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah was like the region in which this town of Bethlehem was found. You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, you may have heard that passage because it's quoted in the New Testament, and it happened this way. 
you remember, three wise men from the east, from what we would call Iran, had uh, the appearance, saw the appearance of something in the sky, apparently an astrological sign, we would gather, and they, they determined from it that the Messiah was going to be born. They followed the star to where it was over, and it was Palestine, and they didn't know exactly where they were supposed to go, so they went to the government, seat of government. They went to King Herod and asked him, uh, what, where is the Messiah to be born? Well, Herod was a par very paranoid individual. He was the only person ever allowed to be called king of Israel by the, the Roman Caesar. And uh, he ruled over the Jewish people. He didn't want to have anyone take his place. So he called all the wise people, the, the leaders of the Jewish nation, and he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? Now, if you have ever read or seen how, how Jewish scholars uh, make a decision, it's very interesting. They will say things like this. One will say, in answer to a question, well, Rabbi Shammai said. And another one will say, well, yes, but Rabbi Hillel said. And Rabbi Barack Obama said. You know, all these people, <laughs> they say, they, they said certain things, and then they'll talk about that. And, and finally, one of them will say, well, I think, and based on all this reasoning, they'll give a conclusion. And you would expect you get the whole Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish nation together, there's going to be a long discussion. Where's Messiah going to be born? But it's so interesting. In Matthew chapter 2, it says, they said, they answered him, like with a united voice, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Because, Micah wrote 750 years before that, but you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're a very small, obscure city. From you will come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, in order for that prediction to be fulfilled at the birth of Christ, his parents had to be in Bethlehem, but we know they lived elsewhere. But God moved the seat of power of the whole world, the Roman government, the Roman Caesar, to, to a decree that a census would be taken. And the census required that people return to their ancestral origin, their place of origin, in order to be counted. And it would mean that wherever your clan, your larger family grouping came from, you had to go back there. And Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem, which was an obscure city, but it happened to have been the city, uh, the town where King David was born in about 1,000 B.C. But he went back there, and that's obviously where Jesus was born. Now, let me note about these words in Micah chapter 2. It says... Um, that the ruler will be born in Israel, and it says of him whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Some of you might be using a different version of the Bible, and it may say from eternity or from everlasting. There is sort of debate, and I couldn't figure out this week which, one, uh, which side I would fall on. Does this mean that this ruler who is born is going to come from ancient days, that is, from an ancient house in Israel, a lineage of great distinction. Well, we know that that was true. Jesus was born of the line of King David with direct descent from David, both through his mother and through his father. The New Testament undertakes to make that very clear. So we know that he was born of ancient days. Or does it mean that he was born of everlasting? That is, the Messiah would have an eternal origin. And we know also from the New Testament that is true, that Jesus Christ existed before his birth of the virgin, that he was in fact the second person of the Trinity who became a human being. He preexisted that and his origin is eternal since he is God the Son. Now, both of those are true, so I'm not sure it matters exactly which one scholars end up with. 
but it's a precise prediction about Jesus that is fulfilled exactly as Micah gave it. Now, there's the song, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. That's what we're thinking about this morning. And here it says the king, the ruler, is going to be born in Bethlehem. And we find out that that happened exactly as was predicted. The words in the song, you see, aren't just poetic, sentimental words that someone wrote down two or 300 years ago. They're drawn from Scripture and from basic ideas that Scripture contains about who Jesus is and what he did. And so when we sing the song, Joy to the World, and we say, let every heart prepare him room, what we're saying is you ought to respond to the words of Scripture. And the first thing you ought to respond to is Jesus has fulfilled prophecy. Now, it might be important to know that this isn't the only prophecy about Jesus that's in the Bible. There are dozens and dozens of specific statements that he had to fulfill in his birth and his life and his death. The prophecies or predictions about the Messiah, you might think in the Bible they start very large and then they get narrower and narrower and narrower until they pinpoint on one person. For example, it said, Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, that the Messiah would be a male human being who was born of a woman. So he would be a true human individual. Well, then that becomes narrow later in the Bible when we're told he will descend from Abraham, one specific human being. And then we're told later he, he will descend from uh, two generations later, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, through one of Jacob's 12 sons named Judah. He had to come from that tribe, that clan. And then later in the Bible, as you read on further, you find out in 1 Kings that he was to come from specifically the lineage of King David, who was a descendant of Judah. And here that he had to be born in Bethlehem. You see, the, the, the predictions get narrower and narrower and narrower. It, very broadly, it could be any male human being in the beginning, but as you get further, no, had to be from a certain family and from a certain uh, clan and tribe and individual lineage. And that's what makes this so remarkable. This is only one. It's an important one because it states the Messiah will come from an obscure village that he says is not an important place. And so the first point that we would gather from this is that Jesus fulfills prophecy. He fulfilled it already. And if that is true, you should respond to him in the way that this says you. You should submit to him as king because his promised rule was predicted to happen in a certain way, to begin in a certain way. The ruler has been born in Bethlehem, just as it was predicted, and we should submit to him. But the passage goes on from there, and that's what I want you to know. When we say Jesus fulfills specific predictions in the Bible, we mean much more than just the fact that there were some things about his birth or his lineage or his life that were predicted in the Old Testament. We mean that Jesus even now is fulfilling prophecy. So I want you to note, Micah's words go on into a place where most of us probably haven't heard before. Read verses 3 and 4. Therefore he, God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, 
those words are talking about the ruler in verse 2, the one who would be born in Bethlehem. And it, it reveals more about him, that he's going to be the means by which others are restored to Israel. And he's going to be the means by which he shepherds and cares for them. And this word about him is going to extend to the ends of the earth. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And it's a prediction of what happens after the birth of Christ, describing the present time, the present time, the church age in which Christ shepherds his flock. He builds what we call the church, the people of God. In fact, Paul specifically refers to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. When he's writing about the church and what God is doing at the present time, he uses the words, he himself is their peace, that are found in the first words of verse 5. In fact, let me read the passage from Ephesians 2. Just listen to it carefully. Paul wrote, at one time, you Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, at one time, you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Now, what it's saying is that this promise of the Old Testament that God would someday bring the Gentiles in to the people of God is fulfilled in Christ. That now that Christ has come, the message extends not just to the physical descendants of Abraham, whom today we call the Jewish people, but it extends to Jews and Gentiles who are brought into one body, the body of Christ, the church. They're brought into it through the death of Jesus in their place. And that's what's predicted in Micah chapter uh, 5 and, and verse 4. And it even says he will be great to the ends of the earth, as even now during the present age the church takes the message of Christ and we spread it throughout the world. As we do that, we are fulfilling what he said from the very beginning that the Messiah would do. So right now, as we gather together here, it's like a prediction made in 750 B.C. is being fulfilled in small part because God is gathering uh, people together, breaking down barriers of race and education and ethnicity and gender, and he's building the household of God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, the people of God. And he's including people in it who would have no other place there otherwise. People like myself, I'm not from a Jewish background, and yet I've been incorporated into this movement, into this family of the people of God. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So right now, Christ is shepherding uh, his people, and he does it through faithful churches in which the word of God is preached, and uh, people are seeking to celebrate the majesty and the greatness of God, and seeking with a heartfelt faith to live for him as they move out into their lives. So right now, those of us who sit in this room who are, who are Christians in America, some, some of us who have never left our native soil, when we hear that there are a small group of believers meeting today in Baghdad in Iraq, and they're gathering together in secret to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we know in our hearts that we have a sense of solidarity with those people. 
people will never see until we're in the presence of God. But we know we're part of the same thing. We're celebrating the same God and seeking to live to the extent that we're able to the same God for the same God. And that's what a local church is like. It's like an embassy in the world. It's like a piece of territory over which the, the ruler reigns even now. The shepherd king of this passage reigns over the church. And that means like this one church where we meet today. But understand, I don't mean he reigns over the territory like this physical building, uh, this property that we own. It's not that he owns that like an embassy. It means he reigns over the territory of human hearts hearts of people who meet together so that when we gather we do gather in this place and it becomes we become the Bible says the temple of God like we worship together we become the place where God dwells by his spirit but when we scatter we go out of this building we return back to our lives the territory now moves out into the world to seek to express to spread the reign of Christ so because Jesus is even now fulfilling prophecy the message of scripture is you should submit to him as king. Now, that's the first two things the passage says. Christ has fulfilled prophecy. He is fulfilling prophecy. But what happens is Micah went on and he predicted things, some of which are obscure and some of which have not yet happened. Now, it's important to understand how the, uh, the prophets saw things. We gather from the way the prophets are written that they would have, under the, the, uh, some act of God, supernatural revelation of God, they would have some insight into a future event. But they, they saw the future like a, a series of mountains. Perhaps you've seen a, a huge mountain range, like those who have been to Albania, if you've been to the north, if you've ever gone there when I've gone, the, there's these mountain ranges, that are, and they're just magnificent, and they go on and on and on. They saw the future like that. There's a series of mountain ranges, and they're so high, they're up in the mist, and so they're not always completely visible. In the back, they know there's one grand, huge mountain that overshadows them all, but they can't always distinguish how far apart the mountains are. And they see one, and they catch some glimpse of it, like this prediction that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But they don't always know the chronology, and so... The, the prophets are difficult in that sometimes you're trying to understand what is the chronology of what's being revealed here. And what happens oftentimes is what happens in the rest of this passage. The prophet reveals some things that are going to happen in the future, and we know now that some of them have happened and some of them haven't. And that's because he was not distinguishing future events of, uh, uh, of great importance from future events of final importance, like things that will happen when God wraps up history. So look at the passage with me just for a moment, if you will. We don't have time to go through it sentence by sentence or anything like that. But what happens is he begins by referring to the Assyrians coming. What happened in Israel after the time of Micah is that the Assyrian Empire, the world power at that time, came down and fought against Judah, the southern kingdom, but, as the passage says, they, were not, they didn't prevail. Judah remained an independent, free country. But then, at some point, they were taken into exile. And so they're found, verse 7, in the midst of many peoples, the remnant of Jacob. 
and, and they're in exile somewhere. And then it goes on and it says that God frees them. And at the end of the passage, it says when, when God frees them, verse 10, he's going to destroy all military power. And when God frees them, ultimately, he's going to cut off all occult practices and all idolatry of any form. He's going to cut that off completely from among uh, his followers. And, and uh, when, when he comes, verse 15, the end, in anger, I... And wrath, I will execute judgment on the nations that did not obey. Now, here's the thing. Those last things, beginning in verse 10, have not yet happened. Military power has not yet been destroyed. All false religions and idolatry have not yet been rooted out. And God has not executed vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a prediction of future events, some of which have been fulfilled and some of which await the end, they're revealed like in the book of Revelation at the end when God destroys all rule and authority and establishes his eternal kingdom. So these things, some of them, the Bible says, have not yet come to pass. They are going to come to pass in the future. And the point is, Jesus will fulfill prophecies, predictions that were made that have not yet been fulfilled. He has fulfilled prophecy like his birth in Bethlehem. He is fulfilling prophecy like the development of his church, his shepherding of his church, ruling it by his spirit through his word and extending the message of God's word to the ends of the earth. And he will fulfill it when he finally comes and destroys all rule and authority and Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, as we're told about in the New Testament. That's why I'm saying you should receive him as king. We should submit our hearts to him and live for him because he fulfills prophecy in every aspect. He's already done it in ways that we can identify. He is doing it in ways that we can identify. And we can trust that he will do it in the ways that God has revealed to us. And so we ought to even now submit to him and seek to live for him. Now, we have a saying today. You may have heard it. I've only heard it in the last year or so, but it's where someone who is holding an opinion that someone else thinks they shouldn't hold or that is out of step with where they should be, there's a saying, you're on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that? It's on the news sometimes. You're on the wrong side of history. What, what it usually, uh, the way it's usually used is um, people are holding a moral or an ethical view that some pundit or political party or media person or whatever thinks they shouldn't hold, and he says, you're on the wrong side of history. You're going to lose in the end. Well, I, I want to... Think about that for a moment. Let me just split hairs for a, a brief second here. They're not using the right word because history is way too long to determine who's on the right side and the wrong side. That's only going to be shown in the end. Some people might be on the right side of what's going on right now, but you find out in a thousand years they're very much on the wrong side. Or in the end, when God wraps it all up, we'll find out who really was on the right side. I mean, that, that awaits a much bigger picture. What they really mean to say, they need to use a different word. They need to say you're on the wrong side of culture. You're on the wrong side of where society is at right now. And, and that may be true. My word to you is, if you feel that at times, don't worry about it. Scripture tells us that the people of God in every generation are at least on some things going to be on the wrong side of their culture. What's going on right then is not going to match the values of the kingdom of God that they're seeking to live by. You think of it this way. When Jesus died in, in the first century, 
in the Roman Empire, which was the majority of the known world, was ruled by Rome. In that time, in that, that culture, there was one chief amusement that almost everyone in society engaged in. That was, in every city, there was a Colosseum. Perhaps you've seen some of them. They're not only in Rome, they're all over. There was a Colosseum, and people would go to the Colosseum, and their entertainment would be watching gladiators fight to the death. So they'd see two incredibly strong men with different kinds of weapons of war fight each other until one of them killed the other. And then as light uh, uh, in between commercial entertainment, they'd feed slaves to the lions and watch wild animals tear each other apart and fun things like that. And one of the first things that Christians said, there were two basic things in the second century, the, the first recorded things about Christianity, two things that they said they wouldn't do. Christians said, we don't go to the Colosseum and we don't expose our infants. That is, if you didn't want a baby, you just threw it out to die. We don't do that. Those are the two things they said and they became known for. We don't go to Colosseums in which we attend spectacles, in which the image of God, men kill each other for our entertainment. We don't do that. It's contrary to the law of Christ. And here's what their society said at that time. They said to Christians, okay, you don't, you don't do that. You don't, don't go to Colosseums. Here's what we'll do. We'll make you the entertainment. So they took the brightest and loveliest of our young women among the Christian movement in the first century for about 200 years. They took the brightest and the of our young women and, and who are pure and modest and following Christ, and they tore their clothes off and threw them naked into the middle of the Colosseum with wild animals so the people would cheer while they were put to death. And you know what they did? Our young women knelt down, and they prayed, and their prayers are recorded in Eusebius, uh, ecclesiastical history, history of the church, the first history that was ever written of the Christian movement, about 300 A.D., what they prayed was recorded. They didn't fight back. They didn't make a spectacle of themselves. They were torn apart. And they took the brightest and the best of our young men who were committed to Christ and seeking to follow him, and they threw him in the Colosseum to fight, uh, to pit them against mercenary soldiers and slaves and others to fight to the death. Or they threw them to lions or different things like that, to boars and bulls and other wild animals. And, and what our young men did, they didn't fight. They knelt down and they prayed, and their prayers are recorded. Some of the things that they said at that point, it, they, they didn't, were not willing to fight and violate the laws of God in an unjust struggle for the entertainment of people. So what I say to you is, why are you so worried about being out of step with your culture? All that we get is a little ridicule. You see, they were willing to live for a time out of step with their culture, because they knew what this passage is about. They knew that Jesus had already fulfilled prophecy in dozens of ways, like this prediction that he would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that in his miraculous birth, in his uh, miracles and his life, in his atoning death in the place of sinners, that in all these ways he had fulfilled precise predictions that God had made hundreds of years before through the prophets. And they experienced that in their own hearts and the forgiveness of sins and cleansing and the, 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 the fact that they wanted to live for God because Jesus fulfilled prophecy, they submitted to him. And they knew he was fulfilling prophecy in their fellowship as Christians when he unites people in his church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
and he shepherds them to the glory of God, and we take his message to the ends of the earth out of gratitude and love for him because he was fulfilling prophecy. They submitted to him, and they knew that they could anticipate he would fulfill every prediction ever made, even that he will judge the nations that have harmed his people. He will establish his kingdom forever. You see, we should receive Jesus as king, and what that means is we should submit to him, seek to live for him, because he is the only one who fulfills prophecy. That means we should accept him for who he is, the Savior. And we should experience him in the way that he reveals himself as a king who seeks to rule over our lives. And we should seek to do this in our own lives and in our families, and as a result of that, in our church. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have to be here. Thank you for the fact that we do not have people that are seeking to throw us to the lions, at least not in any physical sense. Uh, And yet we find it so difficult at times to submit to you. Well, we pray that you would free our hearts from that, that even as we worship you, as we sing together, as we pray, and as we encourage each other in groups and in our homes, uh, we pray that you would work in such a way as to draw us to yourself and give us a heartfelt desire to live for you, that we might seek to be the representatives of you who will show your greatness to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name.